Hello and welcome to Diversifying Reading with Shireen Wilkinson, a series of podcasts brought to you by Oxford University Press in association with Lit in Colour. Welcome to the OUP Diversifying Reading podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome the amazing Laura Henry Elaine. Laura Henry Elaine, MBE, is an award-winning international writer, speaker and consultant. She is the creator of the well-loved CBB's characters, Jojo and Grand Grand, as well as the series associate producer. She is also executive producer on a few shows that are currently in development. She's the Vice President of the British Association for Early Childhood Education and is an educational consultant for several well-known brands, as well as children's media, television and publishing. Laura's new children's book, My Skin, Your Skin, illustrated by Onyinwi Iwu, explores race and racism and empowers children to be the best versions of themselves. So, Laura, you've got absolutely extensive experience here. And I understand that you've recently won a Nursery World Lifetime Achievement Award. Tell me about your experience in education. Oh, my goodness me. Thanks for that introduction. (laughs) No problem. I feel as if I'm at at my own funeral, sort of like listening to a eulogy there. Um, So that's very kind of you for the compliment. So in terms of education, I've had over 30 years experience in a variety of roles. My background is a bit choppy in terms of my career. I left school at 16 with hardly any qualifications because I was dyslexic and it wasn't recognised. And then I went back to college when I was 19 to do a course, um, nursery nursing course, Um, literally became the most studious person ever. And since then, over the last 30 years, I've gone on and done teaching qualifications, leadership and management qualifications as well. So I've had a variety of roles in in education. So I started off as a nursery nurse, then I became the head, worked as a lecturer in a college, then was faculty manager. Um, for my sins, I've been an Ofsted inspector. So therefore, around, I would say, 16 years ago, I went freelance in terms of training and consultancy, started to go overseas about 13 years ago. And I've been blessed to, you know, speaking conferences in Hawaii, New wow. Zealand, um, America, India, Malaysia. And I wouldn't have thought of this, you know, little girl growing up in Notting Hill, Stones Throw Away from Grenfell, but I would have had all these amazing opportunities connecting with global leaders, you know, meeting the Dalai Lama through part of my work. And even though I work now more extensively in TV, media, and in publications at the heart, I am still an early years educator. So if I'm reviewing a script, working as a a producer, it all comes back down to my roots in early childhood education. And that's important. Do you think that sort of helps with when you're giving advice, et cetera, in terms of producing to have that background knowledge? A million percent, because I can go in and with that education eyes and mind to really unpick what's going on and the beauty of it is I still go into schools and nurseries preschools and childminders now 
and you know not so much obviously because of what we've gone through the last 20 months or so yes yes I still now and then go in and in the summer I nursery sat my friend's nursery for a week and that was really good in terms of the the richness and the conversations that I had with children they Mm. blow me away with their levels of curiosity and and their questions and they how they tell it as it is yes (laughs) and I just feel that it's amazing that I'm quite privileged to still have the opportunity to still have those connections with children and their families in many different areas in the UK and overseas that's incredible experience Laura I'm kind of thinking back to what you first said and you said you left school at 16 and so and I suppose my my next question is what then motivated you to then go back to education and to 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 pursue um the you know the qualifications that you now have yeah I think I love my job working as a clerk typist and it was good experience because when I'm writing, I can type very fast. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Um, and I think one day I just reflected and I, I, I loved it so much. Is this going to be me the rest of my life? And I reflected back and I thought, well, what do you want to do? Or I had these conversations with myself and I thought, hmm, hold on a minute. When I was at school, I did a two week placement in a nursery And I loved it. I really thought it was amazing. I really loved going in there, connecting with the children. I remember doing, we had to do an activity and mine was string painting with the children. It was on circle paper. I do remember keeping one of the drawings the children had made. I don't think I got rid of it, but I do remember it quite quite visually. And I thought, that's what I I want to do. I want to work with children. I want to be a nursery nurse. So I applied to my local college and then it was, you only had the NNEB qualification and yes. it was an oversubscribed course. I did not have the correct qualifications, but me being me, I thought I'll still apply. <laughs> I do remember it being a group interview first and then we had a one-on-one and I got in. And Oh, brilliant. And I just thought it was amazing. Probably they could see that I was passionate about it, even though I didn't have the qualifications. And as soon as I started, this was where I needed to be. And the first day, the lecturer, Val Jackson, who was just amazing, she said to us, we shouldn't never call children naughty. The first week we watched The Colour Purple, even though I'd seen The Colour Purple before. She mm-hmm. introduced me to Maya Angelou and, you know, I've been in love with Maya Angelou ever since then. So it all started, didn't it? Yeah, That's from where her. it all started. Yeah, absolutely. The passion from Val Jackson that she had. She was a nursery teacher herself, I think, reception and a nursery class prior to teaching. Her passion rubbed off on us and... Wow, that you know, when you look back, it just goes to show your early experiences um, do impact on your future career. And you might be aware that the the Lit in Colour publication mentions that there are very few texts using scores that are written by Black or Asian authors. What would be your advice to anyone from any background that would would like to become an author, a children's author? Yeah, I think. I've read the the report and I think that doesn't surprise me Mm. because I do believe that there are many talented authors and illustrators out there 
that are from a diverse background is just that they haven't been given the opportunity because mm. I know there's been a few incentives. I was on one last year called the Secret Story Board. And to see the talent that came through that was profound. Okay. So I do believe it's about how we can hook back to the starting point for me would be secondary schools in terms of maybe identifying the, the talent, saying that you can do. And for me, I think the biggest barrier is a financial barrier for individuals and not knowing how to get into the the industry. If you're from a a, a background where your parents may be working poor, you can't then say to your parents, you know, can you support me for a year because I want to get into writing. And I think it is, you know, a... I think it is changing, which I think I see as a positive from the publishing companies that I work with. I think it's it's really, really positive how they're engaging in a number of incentives. But I think as well as the diverse writers and illustrators, we need to be looking at who's sitting at the top table. So in terms of the, you know, the, the editors, so who, who have we got working in the publishing houses? So if somebody has written a children's book that's never been done before and then they think oh no this isn't going to sell but is it because they're looking at it from that the publishing house their own lived experiences and we know now from books that the so many diverse books have done fantastically but I know in terms of what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing the publishing community are working quite hard behind the scenes with different incentives. But I think we do need to be looking at recruitment and retention of diverse colleagues who work in that industry. And what can we do more? Because we've got the, the writers and the illustrators are there. Yes. The people who sit at the, the decision makers, how can we make sure that they're, that's more diverse? Which I think it is changing, but everything, as we know, it's not going to happen overnight. But I do believe my heart tells me even within tv world as well i think it's the same within five years time two to five years time we will start seeing massive changes in my humble opinion (laughs) yeah i think there's some really important barriers there that you've highlighted so to sort of switch the question slightly if you are somebody who um, is perhaps from a minority ethnic black background or from a working class background or any background that's not typically within the publishing industry what would you what would be your advice to them about getting into that and getting into writing I think that compared to you know 10 or even 20 years ago the it's more there's more of a chance I do mm. believe now because you have you know, agents, editors, they're all on the socials. So I always get speculative emails from emerging writers. I've got an idea, what did you do? And I always respond back to them because I'm always one about sending the elevator back down to others. Yes, and yeah, I that's brilliant. And I say to them, you know, go on to the socials, connect with the editors, etc. Um, there's currently an incentive with the book trust and DAPO, they're doing that together and I'm going to be part of that, I think it's next year. Okay. In advisory capacity, so that's really, really good. 
and just follow different people, you know, you know, who are either writers or illustrators, book trust, literacy trust. And um, sometimes there's different schemes happening. There's free one day workshops. Um, two weeks ago, I was in Bristol for the Working Class Book Festival. Lovely. That was fantastic. And I sat on a panel talking about these very same subjects. Mm. And I and I just said that I think the opportunities are there. And there were some sixth formers there. They came up to me at the end asking me a similar question. I just said, just write. If yes. you've got an idea, just write, write, write. Purchase different books, even you know financially, if you don't have to purchase from the main booksellers. Go into the secondhand bookshops, go into car boot sales, pick up children's books and look at to see the way that they've been framed. Ordinarily, the majority of them are 32 pages. Look yes. how they've been sequenced to pick up, you know, if it's your birthday, if whatever festival you celebrate, say to your family and friends, just give me book tokens <laughs> and just see the different styles, how people are, are writing. And not to say you want to clone to be a Michael Rosen or, you know, whoever, or, you know, you, you have to have, I always say, your own style. Yes. I think that is super, super important because some of the feedback that i had back from parents and educators on my skin also and they said oh it's such a good read and I said even when I write for adults I write very simplistic and I don't know whether it's because I'm dyslexic so I'm I'm very sort of it's very it's easy writing I, I don't complicate things so yeah when I am writing again for adults if it's on, say for example, if it's on research I'm writing about, I'd say that I'm a translator. Right. So the point that I'm trying to make is to emerging writers there, write your ideas done, get a cheap notebook from the pound shop. Yes. You know, if you've got a phone that's got a notepad, I'm always making notes. The other day I saw a mouse on a high street and I just sparked an idea for another children's book. Yes. <laughs> this mouse. So in terms of, you know, people ask me about where do you get your inspiration That's from? the teacher side, Laura, that you... <laughs> It is, it's yes. the teacher side. And that's, a, I think, again, for me, it's about you know, where do I get my ideas from? Jojo and Grand Grand, for instance. Yeah. My middle name is Josephine, right? Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> Hence Jojo. Um, mm. So again, I, I say to you, I did a, um, a literacy workshop in Belfast for Ata Primary, so probably year five, six, and then secondary school children, early part. And I just said yes. to them, people gaze, pick up ideas, mannerisms because I'm working on a new TV show one of the characters is a mixture of my grand aunt and grand uncle <laughs> wow. so that's influenced you yeah that's mm -hmm. influences so think about what influences you in terms of buildings etc and number one just hold your own be grounded you know use this overused term that I always say be authentic mm. you know write about what you you know and you know, sometimes people say, oh, yeah, but I've been, you know, can you help me loss uh, an email that I might get? I've been rejected 10, 20 times. Mallory Blackman was, J.K. Rowling was, and look at them now. Yeah, the perseverance. You know, your book, I always say your book, or if it's a TV idea, will end up where it needs to be. Just keep on going, keep on knocking at doors, because somebody at one point will think, 
this is the book that we need. So just keep on going. Some really important messages there, Laura, around writing and having that perseverance um, to keep going, which was quite inspiring. You mentioned there about Jojo and Grand Grand, um, so I couldn't resist. I, I wanted to ask you a question about Grand Grand. Now, I've watched it, and I have to say, um, Great Grand um, came across as very authentic um, watching it and, and, and some of the characters. So what was your inspiration behind that? Yeah, I would say with Great Grand Grand, that was more the production team coming mm -hmm. in, you know, the, the script editors, etc. But it was super important that Great Grand Grand had the St. Lucian accent because yes. she lived in St. Lucia. Yeah. So basically that's where she's based. And we do see that quite a lot on screen. And Llewellyn, who, who voices her, she's St. Lucian heritage like myself. And I knew she would just be the best fit because I do know her from back in the day from Real McCoy and other shows that she's done. Mm -hmm. But it's very important. And I think, you know, the CBB's team worked extremely hard, you know, worked extensively with the St. Lucia um, High Commissioner in the UK, St. Lucia Tourism Authority. Um, they had a cultural reference group. If there's an episode to do with food, they tap in with, somebody who's cooks authentic St. Lucian food. And that's really, really important. And you can see that being played on the screen when you do watch it in terms of the, the nuances that come through there. Yeah, that came across quite strongly when I watched it, the nuances um, and even the point where Jojo wears her headscarf to go to bed <laughs> and think, you know, that for me, that was authentic, you know, um, so I could uh, identify with that. In terms of being in schools then, because you talked a bit about um, working in schools, working with the year five, six children, working with secondary children, what advice would you give to schools around um, diversifying the reading books that they have in their school? I think it's important that the schools do cast their nets out wider <laughs> because the books are there. Even there are some books that are self-published, again, by many diverse authors who haven't been able to get through the door. So they just self-published their own books. Um, I, myself and a few colleagues, created sort of like a list called the Early Years Blacklist for Black colleagues who work within early years. And on there, we have a selection of books that we share. So when we do our newsletter, we always add a, a few children books that are from particularly, especially black authors. So there mm -hmm. are so many ways that you can access, um, you know, also to, in terms of magazines, we've now got Coca Boy and Coca Girl magazine, which I always say every school library, every class should have that magazine in there. <laughs> you know, in terms of their selection. But it's just about, I think, whoever orders the resources from schools just need to cast their nets out wider and not just always go down. But this is where we've always got our books from. Yeah, <laughs> looking at different ways. Books from may not be diverse. And I'm talking about disability as well because my eldest son's autistic. Okay. I'm talking equally too about how we we connect and we show positively the gypsy roman traveler community i'm talking yes. about how we show lgbtq plus books as well and, and imagery from a positive not just doom and gloom story but showing yes. the communities 
positively in their day-to-day life. Which is um, really important that everybody feels included. And I think that's the key message within your book, which we will talk about in a second. That will bring us in really nicely. Okay, let's um, look at something a little bit different. So I know that you've been doing quite a bit of work around being anti-racist. So for those of us listening who aren't quite sure what that means, could you just explain what it means to be anti-racist? So to me, anti-racist, one of the things that I always say, Shireen, it's anti is a doing word. It's a verb. So people can have it on their socials and say, but I'm not racist, I'm not racist. But actually, when you see an injustice, do you speak out? Similarly, what we were just talking about with regards to books and resources, how we make sure we're casting our nets wider to include that. And I just think it's not um, something that we can go on a one day course for as a school and tick the box, I've done that. And I think the the more that we have conversations about it, and I believe every school should have an anti-racist policy and procedure as well as an inclusion policy, and the whole school community should be involved with that. And it's more than having the books, it's more than the the visuals, it's how um, teachers can be reflective what they do on a on a day-to-day basis and think about have they ever been biased have they ever been racist because one of the things i always say is that we have to get uncomfortable to get comfortable you cannot have dialogue i was speaking on a zoom i did a keynote and we did a debrief at the end and the head of this organization said oh what you're saying to me Laura here and some of your experiences has made me feel uncomfortable and I thought but that's correct you should feel uncomfortable (laughs) about racism it shouldn't make you feel comfortable right (laughs) because if it does make you feel comfortable I would be seriously worried so when people say it's making me feel uncomfortable but you feeling uncomfortable should give you an action point what am I going to do about it well what do I need to learn about what books do I need to read? What podcasts do I need to listen to? So it's about then being um, curious. It's about being reading. And then it's about, as a teacher, putting that into practice within your classroom. So building on that word practice, Laura, what what would it look like in practice? If, if, if somebody was going, you know, we want to be anti-racist, um, they're not just making that statement, but they're actually living and breathing it within their schools. What would it look like? I think it's checking in on everything that you do from your work with parents, from your work with, with children. Are we really being inclusive? Are we checking ourselves to thinking, okay, then, looking at our exclusion records as a school, have we excluded more black boys? What's the reasoning behind this? How can we change this? How can we have a real understanding about children's behavior that it may not just be naughty, it's children's way of expressing themselves. Um, Do we give one strike more to black and brown children? Um, So it's, it's just about, I think having honest conversations with ourselves and with our school community 
about actually what it means to be anti-racist. And it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen. I know we're going to get onto my book by the schools purchasing my book. Um, you know, as I referenced earlier, by just having a half a day's session, it really is um, what I would say deep work. I think that's with any school improvement. If you just do half a day training and then come back, you don't embed it. You need that time, don't you, to work on it, to maybe do a project, maybe one year group, trial it, etc. Um, before we talk about your new book, Laura, um, My Skin, Your Skin, do you think we should involve parents on topics such as race, racism and being an anti-racist? One million percent and more is my answer. And when I talk about the whole the school community, I'm including parents and carers there. And to the point last year, co-wrote a guide with Mattel and it was called How to Raise an Anti-Racist Child. And it's a free download online. And okay. I do say with schools, you know, again, if you're starting in this journey, um, as a starting point, if you do want to share that guide because it's free, I know that there are many other guides um, out there that parents can have. There's other books, etc. But I do believe because on my journeys, even sometimes recently, I hear even three-year-olds making racist comments. Where has that come from? Where has a three-year-old making that racist comment? Where has a three-year-old blatantly said not? thinking about what they've said because they've heard it um black people are the bad people black people are the robbers so we must our parents as well i see it as an, a holistic way as an extension to our previous conversations in terms of what schools can do with this is that they have to include parents as as well and that can be that can be quite tricky to involve parents and I think that leads on nicely because you were just talking there about um, a three-year-old um, making those statements so what age I think people are probably always asking you this question what what age do you think we start to talk to children um, in, in in the early years about race I think it's from birth because research shows us that children from three months old can start to differentiate between um, when children get to age three or four, they have quite set views. So I think from the, an early, obviously as a baby, you're not going to start having conversation, you know, deep level conversations, but I'm talking about when we're talk looking at resources, so again, when we are buying equipment resources for young um, young babies, so I know there may be some colleagues listening to this who may be childminders working a preschool or a nursery or crash. So do we provide diverse resources, you know, looking at the festivals that we celebrate? So from yes. an early age, we are drip feeding the messages around inclusion, around everybody matters in terms of the equipment and resources. Then as children get older, we do start having the conversations, hence having the, the book My Skin, Your Skin, because it explains it quite in a child-friendly manner about talking about our differences, celebrating who we are and pointing out differences. And one of the things, Shireen, even yesterday I looked on Facebook, yes. um, which I shouldn't, I should really keep away from the socials, 
the book has been received, I would say, 97% positivity, even yes. from looking at the reviews from the different booksellers and what I've received, the publishers received. But even before that, um, parents and even educators say, I don't see colour. Why do we need to talk to children about colour, Laura? I don't see colour. But that is coming from a polite, kind place. But actually, children do see colour. Yeah, it's like now, you know, open up my door. What do, what do I see on the floor? There's leaves on the floor. There's brown leaves. <laughs> because we're in autumn now. In another month or so, you won't see any leaves on, on the tree. And so do I then say, as a parent, oh, but there's, um, oh, with all the, the changes in the seasons, my children don't see it. You know, my children don't see that there's any changes. And that's the analogy children yes. do. And I think people say that from a point of politeness. So some of the comments have been, why do we need to talk to children about race and racism? Children don't see colour, but they do. I know that if I go into an area that's predominantly white with my work, and sometimes children have said, why are your hands brown, Laura? Yeah. They've noticed it. They do notice it. And I think we're kidding ourselves. I think adults are. And so that's my always my argument back. Research informs us about this. We know children can be racist. So, so we need to have conversations with children about race and racism. And even more importantly, children who do not live in a diverse area. Because I've heard mm-hmm. someone say, but we don't have any black children or parents, we don't have any black children. Yes. Your child yes. is part of a global community. More importantly, that you have these discussions because your child is not coming into any form of day-to-day contact in their community or in school environment with children who look different from them. So having that discussion, even if your 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 school or your nursery setting or early years setting um, is not within a, a very diverse area because um, it's it's global, it's a, the world and, and preparing them for the world. So what do you say then to to parents that, that say, oh, I feel, you know, my children are too young to discuss racism? What what sorts of things do you say to them? So what, one of the things I say back to parents is that I think they're not too young in terms of, you know, repeating what I just said is that we talk to children about big things all the time. You know, recently there's been discussions about discussing mental health, grief. Now, when I was younger, we didn't talk about grief. It was covered up because it thought it was being kind to children not to talk about grief. But what we know now from research, it is important age, stage, ability appropriate to talk to children about grief and about dying, about the cycle of life. And so it's equally important we have discussions about race and racism and what it looks like and to support children to be um, anti-racist. And one of the answers that I give to parents or the education community is unfortunately for a number of black and brown children, they don't get to have a choice whether or not we're going to discuss racism because they are going to experience racism. And I'm not talking about violently here being pulled, which has sometimes happened. It's the emotional, um, the excluding that happens. Yeah, it's people's um, attitudes. And in the guide that I wrote for parents, 
when I was writing it with Emma Worley. And I gave Emma an example in terms of, as a parent, you can say, oh, I don't need to read that book. My family, we are not racist whatsoever. You know, yes. we go to carnival, I go to yoga in India. <laughs> we are not racist. So I then went in and I said, you know, when we were talking about this as an example, it's your actions and behaviour. So if you're walking down the road or in a park with your children, you're yes. either holding their hands lightly or they're running ahead of you, as children normally do. Do you, if you see a group of black youths coming towards you, do you hold your child's hand tighter? What messages are you giving to your children that those black youths are a danger? And that's what I'm talking about in terms of parents with their behaviours that they don't say. They're not going to turn around and say, beep, 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 beep. Some parents say that, well, I never say anything racist, da, 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 da. but really and truly check your subconscious be behaviour. And even I think teachers need to as well to check their subconscious behaviour, how they interact with children and families within their teaching communities. So I've had a really good read of My Skin, um, Your Skin, and um, I've seen that it focuses on empowerment. Why did you include empowerment as part of the book? I just thought it was super important to include that, because I think as well as talking about race and racism, I wanted children to feel empowered I wanted to give children a voice. I want children to have a voice if they experience racism or witness racism, that they've got the, the confidence and the voice to, to talk about it. And I wanted children to feel that they could be anything that they needed to be, because there is that spread in the book. And, um, and that's the reason why I wanted Empower. And I wanted me, myself as a writer, as a mum, as, as a teacher to empower because I, I mentor young people as, as well. And empowerment I think is, is super important when we're having discussions on race and racism because sometimes what happens is in a lot of schools and early year settings, they do Chinese New Year and it's not even Chinese New Year, it's the Lunar New Year. <laughs> So they have all this red and yellow, and then they have um, maybe spaghetti that's colored yellow. They bring in fortune cookies. And I remember over 20 years ago, being at a, a conference to do with inclusion and diversity, they had a professor there from Belgium. And he said, that's really disrespectful to have that, that, that show for those communities, because it's tokenistic. And what right. he was saying then, hence why I included it in the book, what we need to be doing is empowering. I see. Actually, me yeah. doing that display for Lunar New, New Year, I am not empowering people from that, that community. So, yes, we can still visually show our appreciation to those communities, but actually, how, how am I empowering them? And that, to me, is why that's in that book and it's important. Wow. I mean, let's just talk about my favourite page, because I do have a favourite page. It's the world is full of people of different races. This is what makes the world so fun and interesting. And um, there was a picture there. It says my friend is black and um, 
I have friends from all different backgrounds. So it was just nice there. And my cousin is white. And some people have, you know, family members that are from different places. So that was lovely to include. And the one that just really stood out for me was that my mummy is Chinese and my daddy is Ghanaian. And um, my friend is, is half Singaporean, Indonesian and half Ghanaian. Wow. And I, I've been friends with her for over 30 years. And growing up, she was never really represented because mixed heritage was always black and white and so to then see her being represented in a book it really touched me so um just to sort of talk to you what why why did you include that like what was your thought process because it it really resonated with me yeah and no, i'm getting quite emotionally listening to you <laughs> listening to you deeply why that was important because when we talk we're talking about biracial mixed race mixed heritage, heritage. etc the first default we go to is that either parents either black or white yes <laughs> but we don't see sometimes actually to be mixed heritage or mixed race biracial you can be from anywhere in the world if we look yeah. at the vice president you know, half Indian, half Jamaican, the vice yes. president of America, rather, I should have said. Um, and again, I know friends who are differently mixed. So, for instance, could be from Filipino, then could be from Nigeria, could be Brazilian, then could be from um, um, Ghanaian parents. And that, to me, I thought was really important because, as you've just rightly said, you've got a friend and again for some other communities it just opens up their minds to what do we mean when we're talking about children who have parents from different cultures and different races so that for me again wanted to put things in there that sparked ongoing discussions and the feedback that I've had you know just like yourself on that point Shireen is that parents are saying they're picking up different bits. One parent said to me, she purposely left the book by her bedside cabinet yes. <laughs> and her child, she said, the level of curiosity. So she didn't say, let's read this book to this child. Her child just went to it and just literally didn't put it down. It was question after question. And mm. it was super important for me that I had somebody who was black to do the illustrations because... I could probably, I wanted them to really feel my words in the illustrations. And if we, um, and her, anyway, her background is that she um, was born in Nigeria, then lived in Italy, then in the UK. So again, she's got her own lived experiences. And so that is super important. And her illustrations really brought the book alive. It even makes it, I've had a senior teacher from a special special needs school who messaged me to say, this book is perfect. The um, Society of the Speech and Language Therapist gave it a five-star review for oh, wow. children with the, you know, you're a, a, an English specialist, so you know all this, I'm preaching to the converting. No, it's fine, and I'm that, always learning. And that comes <laughs> back to me again, Shireen, about my point of me writing texts that simplistic, that adults enjoy it. Yeah. Children in, enjoy the book. And that's the same, I think, with Jojo and Grand Grand. Anything that I do comes back down to everybody even though it's a children's book or a children's tv show 
there's takeaways there for for everybody oh wow well laura henry elaine you've been brilliant um i've really enjoyed chatting to you uh, just to sort of summarize it's been brilliant hearing about your educational experience over the years particularly you left school at 16 and then you started again when you were 19 that was interesting to hear your tips also on talking to children about um, race um, and the importance of diversifying reading and I particularly like the tips about, you know, if you want to be an author, really persevere. And, and that came across quite strongly. So I'd just like to say thank you very much, Laura. No, thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it. And if any of the listeners want to connect with me, if they've got any questions, um, please feel free to do so. I am across the, the socials or, you know, and or email me. And again, just look out for anything that's shared. I do try to share things on, on the socials. So Lovely. thank you everybody for, for listening and, and your time. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for listening to this diversifying reading podcast from Oxford Education in association with Lit in Colour visit www.oup.com slash education slash podcasts for links to relevant resources and to discover more episodes.